Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with co-host Pete Wall, and back with us again, Grace. This seems to be becoming a regular fixture on this show now, with Grace Williams as well. How are we all? Wonderful. Pete? Yes, good. Uh, good, man. I've got my trusty uh, coffee beans by the side of the laptop as we record here, just in case my energy levels drop below feverish. So, um, yeah, uh, it should be a good one, man. And we're sort of in that interesting run-up period to Christmas. Not only Christmas, but from a film fan point of view also, that time where we obsessively whittle down lists to shorter lists to final lists so that we can do some kind of end-of-year show. And that is coming up, is it not, Paul? It is, yes. I mean, if you, if anyone's struggling to do the end of year list and doesn't use Letterbox, which we bang on about bang on about all the time on this show, Letterbox is a really quite easy way of doing these lists. So I think I've I've whittled down a top twenty, I think. But yes, more to the point, we are we will be doing an end of year show for sure, uh, where we will do our ten best and what, did we do five worst of the year list last year? Yeah, it was fun though, man. I think we're going to do yeah. we're going to do worst films yeah. as well, and who knows, we might shoehorn in some more categories uh, dependent on time. But for today, we're going to focus on something entirely different which is a feature review as we tend to do this time on the film Sorry to Bother You from debut feature director Boots Riley and in conjunction with that our top five is going to focus also on feature uh, debuts from directors directorial debuts if you like in addition to that, we've added in one more section, which is going to take the position of uh, Act 1 this week. And that's going to be a discussion of the recent news regarding hosting uh, responsibilities for the Oscars in 2019, the beginning of 2019. Before we get to all that good stuff, though, Paul and Grace, uh, we always do this part in the show where we talk about what we've been wa- watching recently. And what have you guys been watching? Paul, from your side, I know that there's been a movie that... like was released or or presented as objectively bad. So this is yes. probably a good place to start. This is a good place to start. So yeah, I've been... Uh, people will probably be aware... Um, well, certainly people in the southwest of England will probably be aware of something called the Bristol Bad Film Club, who've got the brilliant Twitter moniker of the other BBFC, which I think is superb. Um, this is run by a lovely chap called Ty, who I had the pleasure of meeting last night. And basically they screen um, objectively bad films and got cult cinema. A lot of the stuff, which is right up my street, and I quite enjoy these these genuinely crappy movies. Um, and they, he bought this uh, Bristol Bad Film Club to Bath last night uh, and screened the 1989, I'm gonna, I am gonna. can't possibly use the word classic, the 1989 Christmas-themed horror, Elves, um, which, quite frankly, was as bad as he promised it would be. He didn't say it would be good, um, in fairness. Um, it was a lot of fun watching this kind of sort of shulky, awful horror with an audience, to be fair, because it's, it's a lot easier to laugh along with it when you're when you're with a with when you're with an audience so it was a lot of fun um but what bristol bad film club do pete is similar to what i used to do and i know something that you love me doing which is to promote the film they would read the they they sort of push the blurb from the back of the vhs box so to give you uh the 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 gist of elves i'm just going to read the vhs box the back of the vhs box as bristol bad film club have done and then i'm going to move on to grace's choice so you can make your own mind up on how we thought elves would be based on this "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through town, bloodthirsty elves are about to get down. An innocent romp in the woods turns into a hellish nightmare when three young girls accidentally awaken an army of evil elves, genetically created by a neo-Nazi mad scientist during World War II. These hideous creatures don't work for Santa, they have a special mission, to mate with a virgin and take over the world as a pint-sized master race. 
Dan Haggerty from Grizzly Adams stars as Mike McGavin, a department saw Santa who must expose this unholy force and stop this gruesome terror before the elves destroy Christmas. Grace, what have you been watching? <laughs> that sounds quite good. I yeah. literally wish I'd been watching that. It's like got a little bit of a synopsis like um, Lep in the Hood kind yeah. of feel. No, it's then... even worse. Than, I <laughs> Things mean, are about to get dialogue, down. <laughs> it's, it, I can't, I'm not even going to try and say it's so bad it's good because I, I don't believe in that moniker, but this is so bad it is funny, but it is atrocious. What did you enjoy watching more, Elf or Elves? Elf. Yeah? Yeah. For sure? Yeah. Okay. I don't know which was funnier, but definitely Elf. Um, what have you been watching? We give, we've given that film too much airtime. <laughs> um, I've been watching um, Hangman with my favourite actor, Al Pacino, but also Carl Urban. Dread <laughs> himself. Yeah. I didn't know this had come out. Is this snuck out on Netflix? Yes. Yeah, okay, snuck right. Out it's, a sneaky, like... it's a sneaky Netflix release with Al Pacino in yeah, it. Yeah, and to be honest, if Al Pacino is playing a cop in any shape or form, if Al Pacino in most things I will watch, but especially when he's a cop, I'm like, sold, I'm going to watch it. Um, he's so grisly, he's so tormented, he'll put some glasses on, sort of go, yeah, I'm, I'm wiser beyond my age now. Um, but yeah, it was about um, Carl Urban's a cop whose um, wife has just died. Brittany Snow plays a reporter who's forced to do a story with him about the, um, um, the police force. And there's a serial killer who whose killings replicate the hangman game but they really don't because <laughs> like the game hangman right you you have to like do the guesses and each one you get wrong you draw the the hangman right whereas this killer I wasn't, he, thanks for explaining how to play hangman well, i appreciate that yeah I, I'm glad, I know like loads of people know how to play this but the writer of this film didn't because like there were deaths in each like letter and it's like that's not how you play hangman at all you don't immediately just kill the person like there has to be a build-up oh like oh we've got to guess it before someone dies and they don't try and guess this bloody word that the hangman trying to get them to guess at all it makes no it's a really bad game of hangman and it's a really bad movie with really bad acting i was really upset <laughs> al pacino tried but it was almost like he's just like oh i'll just do it i'll do the film why not go on then so it's, of... it's a new patio. It's what I just would describe as a patio movie. So Al Pacino's like, I need a new patio. Yeah. Let's go and do a Netflix film. They yeah. give, they actually pay people in patios now, not in natural cash anymore. Bloody hell, <laughs> you know. Uh, Pete, what have you been watching? Well, well, sir. Better um, than those two, hopefully. <laughs> you, you remember when we were all blown away by the directorial flair of the Angry Birds movie? Um, and we all agreed that we had to see what director Clay Catis did next. Uh, well, what he did in his second outing was a, a movie that I think you talked about, I'm pretty sure you talked about recently, Paul, called uh, Christmas Chronicles, that's also getting its dues on Netflix at the moment. This is the one which sells itself as uh, Kurt Russell is Santa Claus. And yes, those things are factual. It is also not very good, in my opinion. Um, this movie kind of starts off like uh, something like The Snowman, where you've got like kids whisked away from their normal environment to fly through the night skies and have this wonderful experience of getting a better insight into what Santa Claus might do on the uh, on the evening of Christmas itself. But like, well, th there are like the churlish points I could make, like none of the stuff makes sense. But I don't think that really matters, does it? It's a kid's movie. It, also, there's the fact that the two kids here I find just insufferable for <laughs> basically from the outset and throughout the, the movie. 
Kurt Russell does have a good time. That's to recommend it, I guess. But like when the writing around him does things like thinking it's hilarious to get him to deliver dialogue that is just lyrics from Christmas songs. I found myself not wanting it to be Christmas. Like the movie made me want to jump to about mid-January. And so, um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like maybe I haven't warmed up. Uh, I'm not full of enough Christmas cheer yet to enjoy this. But when I had a quick look to see what the director had done before and saw, oh, this is the guy who bought us the Angry Birds movie, I thought, yeah, I think I'm probably right. Well, Christmas so Chronicles, I, I mean, not, not very good. It's not great, but in fairness, I enjoyed Kurt Russell's Santa Claus, but I, I reviewed this um, for, for a website and I submitted the review to the editor and I said, no, I'm really sorry, I haven't made the word count. There just isn't that much to talk about in this film. And the editor, the kind of the guy editing the review emailed back and he went, to be honest, from this 90 seconds of the trailer I saw, you would have struggled, I'd have struggled to get to 100 words. So well done you. Right, and like, well <laughs> so, done, well yeah. done the producers for getting Kurt Russell in this. But to be honest, yeah. when it's just That's like, the only good thing oh, about Kurt, it, Kurt Russell Santa Claus. Yeah, sure. I'd like Kurt Russell as Santa Claus in my local shopping centre for like two minutes. <laughs> I'd get that kick and I wouldn't have to see, you know, an hour and a half of this. And like... Yeah, I was I was ready, Paul. I was ready to like get whisked up in a Christmassy fun ride, but it it, it didn't happen for me. I didn't like it. It's annoying. Uh, what else have you seen in the last week? Uh, so I watched the another well, this Netflix again. This isn't even the Netflix special, but they've been rolling out the releases. In fairness, um, this is Mowgli, um, directed by Andy Serkis. Um, his much darker adaptation on the Jungle Book source material. Um, it seems to have taken a little bit of a bashing for the darker direction it's taken, and I didn't really have too much of a problem with that. I think I, I feel a little bit sorry for Andy Serkis because he's rumored to have been working on this long before um, Disney did their live action version of the Jungle Book. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, because that, that version of The Jungle Book I thought was great and I really, really enjoyed it. This one isn't as good as that, but I think the, the kind of darker direction it takes does mean this film kind of justifies its existence a bit more. Um, some of the set pieces are quite scary um, and quite dark, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily suitable for children, which I think is what people might take issue with, is what's the point of a jungle but you can't sit down with the children. But for the most part, I think it's 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 a solid enough it's a solid enough effort. It's not incredible, but I think I like some of the changes that have been made. Um, and it, I'd say it focuses more on the character of Mowgli than the sort of animals around him. So there's gone are the songs, gone King Louis not here. Um, there's there's less focus on the animals in the jungle than there is on the on the character himself. So yeah, I thought for what it was worth, I thought it was I thought it was decent enough. It's not essential viewing, it's not not a patch on Disney's live action version, but I would say give it a chance, there's a lot worse things you could watch. Um Grace, have you seen anything else? Well, in between my um Sleepy Hollow binge watching, um I've caught up with a um a rom com um I can't remember what year it was released. It must have been quite recent. Um, called "What's Your Number" with Anna Faris. Have either of you seen this no. before? No, uh, I've, ki- I've kind of meant to though, because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. I would say I'm kind of a fan of Anna Faris, and it's one of those that feels like exactly the sort of thing that would fill up a bit of time and be good enough. Is it good enough? Yeah, it's 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 really funny. She's like one of the. I think she's like it's a, one of her productions as well, and she's seems to be in these rom coms which are a bit off kilter and not stereotypical and just she's just an absolutely hilarious actress and it's got Chris Evans in it who I usually find really bland um and he was hilarious and then it's got other superhero actors and it's got Chris Pratt in it which is quite funny at the time because I think um him and Anna Faris were married at the time so it's quite funny watching their relationship in that got Anthony Mackie in it 
as well. You sure this wasn't the new Avengers trailer you've been well, watching? <laughs> well, let's just think, because we were like, oh, I don't want to, let's not watch any like superheroes related things. We were like, oh, well, it's and just Chris Evans. And then they're like all in it. Yeah, completely. So, um, and it was set in Boston. It's about a girl who's getting all panicky because she slept with 19 people, which is above the average. So she's going back through all her ex dalliances to try and find the right one. But yeah, it was, it was relatively decent. Good times. <laughs> get that on the poster although it's been out of it yeah, yeah. so uh next from me or, or lastly uh, in terms of stuff i've watched i've got a few more things that related to our countdown for this week but this one is going to be the last one for this section um i saw this movie green book which i believe has a release early next year um so i'm taking the paul anderson role that's what people would call it here which is uh <laughs> where you slightly smugly review a film that other people probably haven't seen yet um yeah this one is the new movie from Peter Farrelly of Farrelly Brothers fame, Green Book. I think I've said the title. Uh, and it is, uh, it's, it's pretty good. It's the kind of movie that very much um, meets the criticism head on that this is sort of um, baiting Oscars or awards nominations. Because it is written in, in, a, in a way that um, makes it a real crowd pleaser. But I think that I'm not the kind of person who rejects a crowd pleaser for being a crowd pleaser if it's a good movie. And what you have at the centre of it is this really strong pair of performances from Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. Mahershala Ali, of course, is this guy who came to prominence in, in Moonlight, amongst other things, particularly in Moonlight incredibly talented actor and he is the standout here he plays uh, an african-american classical pianist and he's going on a tour of the american south in the 1960s but he's to be accompanied by a driver played by vigo mortensen who is this sort of broad straight talking italian american guy who doesn't really have any sort of airs and graces and doesn't really know how to live within politer society uh, where the ali character is this guy who has all of those things, has this incredible knowledge of the world and art and culture and, and a great education behind him, but at every turn meets with discrimination in the South. The green book of the title refers to the book that would be used to find the accommodation that would allow black people to stay uh, when they were in a particular city area uh, part of the South. And so we go with these two on this journey where at certain points, flat out refusal is what is given, what is offered to uh, Marsha Ali's character in terms of like even wanting to not just like sleep in a hotel or motel, but like eat in a restaurant. So he might be the star attraction of the night. He might be the guy that all of these rich white folk have gone to see, but he's also at the same time not allowed to eat in the same area as them, on the basis purely of the fact that he's a, a black man. Um, it, it, it's pretty powerful, but I wouldn't say that that's the thing that's going to stick with me about it. It will be the performances and also the genuine laughs in this thing. Peter Farrelly is this guy as part of the Farrelly Brothers who is known for broad comedy, but what you get here is sort of like this odd couple comedy that's played for... Yeah, like a lot of quite um, smart laughs, not just silly, not gross out humour by any means. Quite smart, quite clever comedy. Lastly, I just want to mention uh, one of my favourite women in the entire world is in this as well, which is Linda Cardellini. So um, what else do you need? Uh, it's a good one. Is that, you, is that why you liked it, if you saved that till the end? <laughs> no, no. Although, what was that movie that we watched recently where Linda Cardellini was in it for like five minutes? Uh 
with with uh, the a she simple favor. As a painter, a yeah, simple favor. Yeah, she she was a painter, yeah, she, yes. a painter and she had a Slayer T-shirt on, and she had a hunting knife, and I was like, "What? I've just gone to heaven!" Like, I wanted that <laughs> to be the whole movie because I didn't like that movie that much. But yeah, she doesn't get to do loads here. She plays Viggo Mortensen's wife, and so they kind of cut back and forth between where she is and where he is. But this is a good movie, man, and uh, yeah, it will be out in like I say, beginning of February, I think, end of January, possibly. Yeah, uh, I think look so. Look out yeah. for it. Yeah, that one's Green Book. Paul, have you got anything else? Uh, no. Grace, have you got anything else? Grace, have you got any other anything else for this section? No. 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 Well, we'll be back shortly then <laughs> with our chat about what what does the Oscars do next? That's what that section is going to be called. Where does the Oscars go next? <laughs> Act one. Where does the Oscars <laughs> yeah. go next? Right after yeah. this. <laughs> Right, so just to give people a bit of context of where does the Oscars go next, if you, you probably have noticed this week that Kevin Hart was confirmed to host the Oscars, and then uh, I said Disney, I'm sort of thinking about James Gunn here, and then the Oscars as a as a body of or, or the Academy found, I think, unearthed some, or some people unearthed some old um, homophobic jokes that were pretty horrible and mean-spirited, uh, some homophobic tweets. Um, he was then asked to apologise, correct, feel free to step in if I'm wrong here at any point, guys, he was then asked to apologise by the Academy and he would then keep his job. He then refused to apologise because he said, I've addressed these issues before and if you can't deal with the fact that people age, I'm now a 40-year-old man and I wasn't going to make these comments. And then, so they went, unfortunately, you're going to have to step down. So he was, he quit, stroke was asked to step down from the Oscars hosting role. Um, Now, I don't really want to dwell too much on that um, because I think it's been well covered. But where do the Oscars go from here? Because I think, you know, Kevin Hart, I think, He's an interesting choice. I don't always find it... I don't mind him in certain films. I don't find his stand-up particularly funny. But I still think he's an interesting choice to kind of... to to breathe some life into the Oscars, which if you look at the viewing figures and that kind of thing, they are plummeting. So ultimately, arguably, it could be argued that doesn't need doing. I think he's an interesting choice to try and broaden the appeal of the Oscars. But but where do we go next? That's kind of the question. Do... What what do you guys think of this? More not not so much that he's been fired, but where do they go next? Really, I think is probably the more of the discussion point here. But um, just to tag on that, Paul, I don't really want to. I don't really have a, a strong opinion to give right now. But um, two point uh, twenty six point five million people tuned in last year or this year, I suppose twenty eighteen at the beginning, and that was the lowest uh, viewing figures that they've ever had. Mm. So you, you further to your point of the fact that the figures are going down. They've actually hit sort of, yeah, the nadir in terms of interest in in the Oscars. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think that Kevin Hart seemed like a kind of fairly zeitgeisty guy in a sense, at least in terms of the Hollywood machine, because here Mm. you've got this guy who is pretty much um, the embodiment of like self-made, who has come from... um, uh, uh, come from sort of obscurity I would say and built his way up to being on such a a massive level uh, or such a a a far-reaching platform that he has now in terms of like the different arms of the entertainment stuff that he does that whether you like him or not I think that maybe he would have the uh, wattage to sort of hold a a thing like this because you've seen things like the the Anne Hathaway um, who was it with Anne Hathaway James Franco James Franco yeah who looked like he was high the whole time and the whole thing failed and that's the last time you've had like two people um, or more than one person hosting the Oscars so whether they'll go in a direction where there's more than one person, again, you look at an example like that and you think it's it's a risk. Where Grace, have you got an easy answer to this question? Who who should take the place of uh, this? No pressure, man. <laughs> I think it's 
it's a similar opinion to what I have with um, the Graham Norton show, whereby the um, kind of tradition of having a host sitting down with um, artists and discussing and not having to have jokes and bits interjected every five minutes and just having an air of um, sophistication and glamour and um, yeah so I think that element of showbiz is kind of going and the Oscars very much used to be this glamorous um, uh, Hollywood royalty occasion whereas now whether that's because there's um, it's oversaturated with film celebrities the nature of celebrity has changed the um audience goers attention span has um is even more difficult to engage um i think what the academy kind of needs to do is try and bring back that old hollywood glamour to the oscars because i think there's only so many jokes and bits you can insert to try and get people's um, uh, viewership, especially in an age when people don't watch a lot of live television anyway, and you Can know, I, do you watch it? Do you watch the Oscars? Um, I I catch up afterwards. I don't watch it. See, I catch live. up afterwards as well. Yeah. I find I find the whole show a little bit too long. Well, I mean, it, I think the last yeah. time I mean, the last time I watched it was with you, Pete. I think. Yeah, but in fairness, Paul, it, I mean, we say, oh, we catch up with it afterwards. I mean, it airs in the middle of the night. Over yeah, there. so I mean, I'm not. Um, who's staying up for you, that? But would, uh, my question would be, do you watch the whole thing from start to finish? The last time yeah. I did that was when me and you did it, Pete, but I don't. I find it no, I, do. I find it too long. And I'm an art, I consider myself to be a fair, you know, quite a big film fan. And if I'm not watching it from start to finish, yeah. then there's a problem with the show. Yeah, but, then, you... but then again, I would say perhaps you, you could argue that it, it might seem like a slightly perverse argument, but it's not necessarily for you. And by you, I don't mean you, Paul Anderson. I mean, like, people <laughs> who are very um, into film and are sort of, like, very on the... have their finger on the pulse of sort of what's going on with new releases and filmmakers and, and back catalogues and stuff. I don't know that it's for them at this point. I think it's oftentimes mm. for your kind of general consumer who dips yeah. into cinema, you know, a couple of times a year, wants to know what the good films have been, and then they'll catch up with those in the, in the following months. You know. Yeah, you make you make an interesting point because I don't I think it's, it's very rare where the best picture Oscar actually ties into to what I to what I would think it would be or what I think is the best film of the year is rarely even nominated. So I kind of I see I see where you're coming from to a point there. So, but 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 on what you were saying, yeah, like I I do watch it and I watch it every year and I'm it's it's not that I'm blind to the criticism of sort of how. Um, sort of stodgy and dull and out but you know uh, played out the whole thing is it's just that it's a load of um you know leading lights in in hollywood filmmaking and and to a certain extent in sort of um like smaller indie projects sometimes and uh, sometimes even the odd international filmmaker and stuff and like I just enjoy the like pageantry of the whole thing. I enjoy that. And yes, I know that it's going to drag and it's going to be tedious at times. And it's not really going to change the way I think about anything or give me anything particularly interesting to talk about later. I just enjoy taking it in. I mean, my wife and I will watch, uh, you know, all kinds of music. We'll watch the Grammys. We'll watch all kinds of these award ceremonies that if you really are objective about it, yeah, maybe it's a waste of time. Maybe it's dull. But the Oscars still has enough appeal and it has enough history to keep bringing me back to it, albeit, you know, the next day or two or three days later. Do you think they should host them? Do you think they should host? Do you think they should mix it up? Well, I I don't know. Like, uh, in realism terms, I mean, it should be that sort of classic 
old Hollywood. Someone like, um, not that I'm saying this is an old Hollywood person, but someone with that sensibility, like Brian Cranston, maybe. Right, okay. Somebody who who has the charisma to anchor the thing, but is also not offensive on sort of any level or is not going to upset anyone. But then my other choice is completely the opposite end. Give it to Eric Andre. <laughs> And let's and let's just like blow the whole thing apart. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you can see from those two picks that I've not really got a a solid grasp on what we should do with this. Grace, do you do you know who you would have? I've got three choices. I think I'm going to stick with them. So if any of these people did it, I'd be happy. Or all so, three of these people, or all three, <laughs> would be even better. Um, okay, so Julie Andrews. Okay, because oh, she job. is just like the epitome of. Just class. Yeah, exactly. With Mary Poppins being released as well. Wonderful. Um, Samuel L. Jackson. He's He's got uh, an old time coolness to him, but he's also kind of trendy, but he's not too offensive. And I'm sure he can hold his F-bombs for one evening. <laughs> and, um, and then Keanu Reeves, because he's so inoffensive, isn't he? He's the most <laughs> inoffensive, dashing, nicest man in Hollywood he's referred Until to. Until someone kills his dog. Well, yeah, and then he'll just like bombard you with amazing choreographed fighting. But um, yeah, Keanu Reeves is one of the most inoffensive, nice people in Hollywood, and he's so charming. And I think that would win an audience, and especially if he did like a Bill and Ted tease as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I could, I could get down with that. <laughs> I could get down with that because he's the kind of guy, you know, you put him in a in a good suit. He's going to look the part. He's going to yeah. deliver his lines properly, and he's also got a sort of easy humour about him, so that yeah. would probably work to its advantage. And I mean, some of the picks that you've had in recent years have definitely worked better than others. But yeah, there are there are certain people where you think like that would be a safe pair of hands, and maybe what they need now is a safe pair of hands without mm. totally bottling it and putting in someone too so too bland someone like a double header of tom sizemore and johnny depp for example would that work out do you think <laughs> yeah perhaps not would johnny no. depp get through a line or would his no. face melt i can imagine not who would i like i'm not sure who i'd like to host it i quite like the idea of there not being a host were you weren't you weren't you advocating for a deck and holly willoughby to do the oscars <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely i'm a celebrity safe, me safe pairs of hands over there <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah i don't see why not so, or um or Mel and Sue. Rick and Morty. No, do you know what? Nolan Nolan Sandy from Bake Off. That's who I that's who I'd have on the Oscars. Oh. <laughs> Imagine the job. Yeah, this is a UK podcast, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So for the people listening in the US, you might have a clue who we're talking about. But look certainly look up Noel Fielding and Sandy Toxin. Because that could be um that could be that could be a winner, I think. Yeah. Noel Fielding's Oscar jumper would be he looks nervous enough presenting yeah. Bake Off though, so I don't know what he'd do on the Oscars. <laughs> or for the American listeners, get Scott Alkerman in front of the Camerons but instead of writing because that guy is a well, is a comedic genius. I have no idea who that is. Scott Alkerman, he's um um he used to do stuff with Mr. Show, he does comedy bang bang podcast. Right. Um Between Two Ferns, he produced that and uh, okay. he writes I've lots of, of actors' scripts for um Oscars, Grammys, that sort of thing. And um yeah, he's been a solid um comedic force for years and he's really, really good actor as well. Get him in front. Scott Alkerman, there you go, fourth choice. Um, uh, Hassan Minaj <laughs> is is uh, uh, not going to get the job, but that would be someone who who I would I would like to see there. Or even like, um, okay, if we're going to go on, down, hold on, hold on, Jeff Goldblum. Jeff, Jeff Goldblum, Goldblum would be good. Yeah, see, Jeff we could Goldblum do that. Work, we I could think. do this job, I think. As yeah, a we're gonna we're gonna program the Oscars. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that, or I was gonna say, if we want to do like a transatlantic thing, and we don't mind that these people aren't really in by any description actors. Well, in one case, not really actors. Uh, John Oliver, 
and Nish Kumar. Because then we've got like the work, mass yeah. report and we've got uh, John Oliver obviously has gone on to the Daily Show and stuff, but has come from places like Community. But like both of those guys working together, really, really funny, lighthearted, but intelligent. I think it would be good. Or the double header of Jim Rash and Joel McHale hosting the Oscars. That could work. Yeah, Joel McHale would be capable yeah. of doing it for, yeah. for sure. Or Jim yeah. Rash. Jim Rash would be quite funny. That would be, yeah, I think we've nailed this. Yeah. So Academy, if you're listening, which you're definitely not, uh, there you go. There's our suggestions. Yeah. It seems like, though, from those picks, whichever direction they go, apart from maybe Keanu Reeves, they're going to have to take something of a risk on on who the host is. But then Kevin Hart was, was arguably a gamble. They, they're not, they weren't playing it safe with Kevin Hart. Yeah, but Kevin Hart's box thought, office, but... though, isn't he? Kevin Hart's yeah, box office, true, yeah. like in terms yeah. of, of, of name recognition and sort of Actually, Yeah, if you think of it that way, like yeah, that. He's, yeah, he's a very, he's well, one of, yeah, one of America's He's the highest selling stand-up men, comedian yeah. in the world. Oh really? wow! He? Okay, yeah. Wow. What <laughs> facts? But he just screeches his jokes. You can't even understand them. Well, as long as he's screeching jokes and not screeching, you know, homophobic slurs, then that's probably preferable. Right. Well, we've now fixed the Oscars, so yeah. we're going to have a little break while we bask in our own glory and award ourselves some golden statuettes. Uh, we'll be back very shortly with our feature review of Boots Riley's directorial debut. Sorry to bother you. So we are back. Now, the film in question this week, as Paul has just mentioned, is Sorry to Bother You from feature direct director in his debuting uh, the directorial role. I couldn't stumble over All that anymore if All I tried. Days, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is Boots Riley. Boots Riley, a person who is known from, I think, primarily the world of music and has transitioned over into the director's chair. And Paul, you've actually done sort of a mini review on Sorry to Bother You just a few weeks back when you caught up with it ahead of time, ahead of the general release, I suppose. Um, but what we have here is the story of a character played by Lakeith Stanfield, who is... In pretty much like a sort of early life existential crisis um, in which he doesn't, he spends a lot of his time thinking about things like whether the sun is going to explode, whether there's any future for humanity. And all the while he's just trying to make ends meet. He takes on a job in a call centre to try to provide a better life for himself and his girlfriend played by the actress Tessa Thompson. More on that later. Uh, <laughs> you lost and, your breath uh, for a second there, Pete. <laughs> and, and yeah, he takes this job in a call centre and he immediately learns that the the greatest achievement of anyone working in this call centre is to become a power caller. So this is sort of like the ascension to heaven. If you can take on a role as a power caller, you move upstairs and you have benefits beyond anything you could possibly imagine. All the while, though, it seems like something a little bit sinister might be happening within the organisation and within maybe society at large. There's a lot of political unrest. Uh, The people are unhappy. And onto the scene comes a man who says that he's going to help Lakeith Stanfield's character and the rest of the employees start the first union for uh, call centre employees to overthrow the people who are underpaying them and treating them badly. Before we get into a full review, here's a little clip. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you're pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody get out. All right, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? 
then read the script with a white voice. When people say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? Right, so what I'll say from the outset, Grace, is don't panic, because we're not going to do any spoilers, because you've not you've not caught up with this yet, have you? No, I haven't. Which is annoying, <clears throat> which is annoying no. that they weren't showing it. But no. So we're not going to do any spoilers, and yeah, and for those of you listening at home, we'll try and do our best to avoid spoilers, as we usually do. Um, yeah, I think the first thing to say, Pete, on this is, I've worked these jobs, and oh my Christ, <laughs> is this film accurate with how petty and silly this call centre and sales bullshit really, really is. And I think the film uh, absolutely captures that in a way that hasn't been done probably since uh, Mike Judge's office space in terms of the in- inanity of selling and the corporate greed and the way this satirises those kind of jobs, I think is is brilliant from the outset. So that it does that very, very well. I wanted to leap in there. Um, yeah. What do you think, Pete? You've, you've, we've all we've all worked these these. Well, yeah. So, jobs so from the outset, I mean, when the guy uh, goes, Cassius is his name, isn't it? Cash for short. When he goes to interview yeah. for that job, um, he is. It's one of the first sequences in the film. He's in the interview, and he's basically fabricated three major pillars of his background and qualifications. <laughs> one of which is a trophy that he admits uh, towards the end of the exchange. He actually, uh, well, he didn't make them up. He had them made and um the guy who's interviewing him as you would kind of expect from a guy in in a role like this rather than bulking at the fact that the guy in front of him is a shyster who's just sort of made up a load of stuff says like you're exactly the kind of thing i'm looking for you know you've got the wherewithal to just lie directly to my face because what you want is the end result and that's what the whole organization is built on here is just say whatever you need to say in order to make the sale you know um Always be closing, Paul. It's the ABCs. But then we haven't mentioned yet that what makes a big difference to Cassius' ability to move towards power caller is when he's informed by a co-worker played by Danny Glover that what you need to do in this position is... Don't talk in your normal voice. Talk in your white voice. And there's a wonderful exchange where it's explained exactly what this white voice is. And it's not really the voice of a white person, but it's what a white person believes that they sound like or how they would like to be perceived. Um, it's really, really smart. And then you've got the the voice itself. As soon as it comes out of his mouth, the newly uh, formulated white voice is very <laughs> clearly the voice of David Cross, who is a, a comedian, an actor that... that is it really? I thought that when I was watching it and I just, I thought when I came back, I was like, it's I'll David check that. Cross, is yeah. is it I mean, definitely David Cross? I, he's on the poster, right. but also, yeah, I just, I would, I would be absolutely stunned if I've got that wrong. Yeah, it's, it's David Cross. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, he learns that he can get ahead in the game if he uses this white voice. But we've got this kind of tension as well, because the more that he advances himself and realises, yeah, like I can get mine if I just kind of follow these rules... He's dating at this time this firebrand um, sort of, at least on the surface, firebrand political sort of woke activist played by Tessa Thompson, who's an artist doing an installation that's making a point about uh, the way that cell phone um, metals are sourced from sub-Saharan Africa uh, in, yeah, and does an art show that is, again, one of the most memorable bits in the film without, without spoiling anything. So, like, as he starts to succeed... 
in her eyes, he's increasingly failing or he's selling out or he's becoming something other than what she loves and wants to be around, uh, basically. And their relationship is strained for that reason. Um, yeah, further than like the accuracy of the sort of drudgery of the sales life, Paul, to me, <laughs> yeah. one of the standout things about the at least the early parts of this film, and I mean, we can't really get into the later parts of the film. So that's maybe a conversation for another day. But the earlier parts are two things. Yeah. One, this is laugh out loud funny. But two, and in relation to the top five list that we're going to do this week, it's an unbelievably confident directorial debut because you've got bits that are like almost like dream sequence additions to the like linear progression of things. The fact that, for example, when uh, Cassius makes his first sales calls, his whole booth drops into the physical space of the front room or bathroom or bedroom yeah, of the person superb. that he's calling. These things that uh, are sort of like this, this magic realist take on something that otherwise could be a fairly initially straight story of a guy you know trying to get his shit together no i i can com- i completely agree with you and i think it's a, it's a very bold move for a, a first-time director to almost and i wouldn't say he deliberately evokes the work of michelle gondry but there's definitely some michelle gondry in here with, without a shadow of a doubt but to do it so well and to do it without feeling like he's ever ripping anyone off i think is is superb and as you say it's a confident he wrote this as well didn't yeah. he, if I'm otherwise mistaken unless I'm unless I'm mistaken so I think it's from what I've been reading he it took him a long time to write this film and a long time for him to get it right and I think that may be where is where some of the confidence in the direction comes from is that he's just polished this and polished this and polished this until he's, he's so comfortable with with what he's put out but yeah it's it's a visually it's a very inventive film and it's a very yeah it's I completely agree with you it's a, a very bold and very funny, bold though. decision for a first film um, and yeah, by far, and I think I remember, I think I came out of it and there's been some, there's been some good comedies this year, even the mainstream comedies that we would normally take, sort of normally not like Tag was good, Blockers was good, Game Night was good. There's been some very funny films this year, but this is funnier than all of those without a shadow of a doubt. It's the cleverest, it's certainly the cleverest comedy I've seen this year, if not the funniest. Um, but yeah, laugh out loud funny. The, the whole, the whole conversation that's in the trailer that he has with Terry Crews character when he says, uh, when um, um, Cassius is talking to the guy he's renting the garage from, he's like, oh, I need, to, I need a bit more time on the rent. You don't understand. You don't have to supply for your, you don't even look after your family and stuff like that. And Terry Crews' character that's at the window is like, Cassius, <laughs> yeah. I'm your uncle. Yeah. <laughs> like, but it's just, it's the gag, the gag rate, as well as it being, yeah, as well as it being, and we'll get on to the, the more poignant points of the film afterwards. But yeah, as well as it being, an, an important and skewering satire. Also, the gag rate doesn't really fall down, and that all of them hit. So, yeah, it's great and from that perspective. Yeah, yeah there's a very, a, very also film. a sequence that stood out for me, which is um, about breaking the picket line, where uh, Cassius is confronted by his former close friend, who has now become something of a uh, an enemy, I guess, by the position that they have taken in their actions. And uh, they get in each other's faces. And then it's got this kind of key and peel sketch feel about it because they get right in each other's faces. It looks like it's going to be a violent confrontation. But instead, what they do is aggressively compliment each other uh, to the point where it's like, you know, uh, right. What have you got something to say? Have you got something to say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go out for a drink then. Let's go out for a drink. How many drinks? One drink, two drinks, seven drinks, nine drinks. 
You, but do you know what that reminded me of, Pete? That reminded me of that game that you used to make us play when we used to go out, where it was just you had to go round. Was it alphabetically? Oh, yeah. and just insult someone, a and insult. then or the other one was compliment someone. So it reminded me a little yeah. bit of that game that we used to play. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. You got an insight into 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 our incredible <laughs> nights out there for, for um, anyone who cares. But it reminded but, me of but that. Then, but yeah, yeah, further to mentioning people, I think we've run down a, a number of the people who are in this. I mean, on the Tessa Thompson point, yeah, it, it, obviously well publicised on this show. I love Tessa Thompson. She can't do any wrong. She's doing so many. Great great things at the moment it's hard to keep and keep track uh in this thing in particular she gets to wear a succession of the best earrings and t-shirts in cinema in 2018 for sure uh top of that list uh <laughs> we've got like oh, the, the one about um tell how homeland security or something like that says on one earring and on the other one says like uh, i'm the bomb or something <laughs> fantastic and he's got like a sort of spike lee vibe to that stuff and then uh the fact that she has on that you know there's that t-shirt that's uh fairly popular now that says the future is female but hers says the future is female ejaculation i enjoyed that quite a lot as well so yeah tessa thompson is, is really really good here and also you've got um army hammer later in the movie can't and never, yeah, can't, and never can't talk about Army it Hammer too in this much, film, I have but to like, say. yeah. Well, he's the boss of the he's the boss of the company. Essentially, these like it, a, yeah, he's a, a kind of figure. Steve um, Jobsy, it, yeah, yeah, character who lives in a sort of ivory yeah. tower and and amongst a load of debauchery and is kind of just like rolling in in cash and and sinister, you know, uh, ideas. And um, yeah, to think that this is the same actor that you saw, you know, in that um, that love affair in in Call Me by Your Name, like not long ago. And also that he's, of course, both of the Winklevoss uh, brothers in in the social network, which I think is a role that's got a lot more in common with this than maybe some of the other stuff that he's done. Yeah, uh, t- totally. But yeah, yeah, yeah really, really good. I, I, without saying anything about sort of the ending, I'm not sure that Boots Riley quite uh, like nails the the landing on this thing. Um, but yeah, okay. I mean that's open for debate. And th- I mean, there's so much inventive stuff thrown at the wall that if not all of it entirely sticks i mean we're talking about a feature debut as both writer and director what an exciting proposition this is to see future but no and i think but but yeah but what sticks i think what sticks is is certainly the satirical elements of it because we we've seen we've seen sort of corporate drudgery and how workers are shat on in films many times before i mentioned earlier um office space uh, Mike Judge's office space. Well, an as, idiocracy as, one example. as well. There's a lot in common um, with that movie. Yeah, and idiocracy. Yeah, absolutely. But what you've got here is the fact it goes one step further, and it goes into the fact that not only not only are certain working classes of people shit on, that it's actually it's even worse if you're black. Is basically what this film's getting at. Um, and it does, but it does that with such a with such a sort of light. De- it's got such a depth of touch to it. It never feels like it's forcing an issue down your throat. I think we talked. I talked about uh, Peter Lou. I think on the show before where and political filmmaking in general, where I don't like it when it just sort of explicitly labours its point time and time and time and time again and does it in such a way where it's obviously trying to ram this political point down your throat. What well, Boots Riley doesn't do that here. The political point is there and it's it's fairly obvious for all to see, but he does it in such a way that it's funny, so it makes it engaging. And you kind of you forget about midway through that you're watching what is quite actually what is actually quite a political political right. film that is making a very, 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 very and, good. And what's more it's made, not sort so. of um didactic in just like one direction this isn't a thing that's telling you 
that this is the particular side that you should take and this is how you should feel about the issue. Like, no, there's a complexity yeah. to the yeah. writing, I think, that would be easy to miss if you see it as just like a, you know, go- goofy, silly comedy or whatever. Well, no, I com- completely agree because you can see, you can see, you can see the merits. You can see why people would want to be a power caller. You can also see why people would want to go on strikes. You can see, yeah, and he does, he delivers both sides. So you're not sure which way, which direction he's pointing you in. So, yeah, from that from that basis again it just it goes back to what you said Pete. it's just an incredibly confident confident debut for sure um, and and i just wanted to say at the end again to emphasize this point lakeith stanfield is 27 years of age um at this point so apart from all the the boots riley love that will come out of this this guy seems like he is going to be a serious force for a long time to come because his ability to do here like dead serious and also um, a kind of goofy sort of uh, shrugging innocence and then also uh, to be like... I said at the beginning, he's in this existential crisis and you totally buy into it because of how he's able to embody a person who just doesn't know where he's going and which direction is up, you know? And so, yeah, I, I was so impressed by him in this movie and I, and I think that I just, I'm really excited to see whatever he does next, really. Yeah, I think he, he's great here. The cast are great. I think it's, it's, for me, it's the comedy of the year. I think it's a absolutely superb film. I really, really liked it. It goes in a direction you don't necessarily expect, which I really liked and I won't go into any more details than that i like where it went um you won't expect what happens and that's great and for me yeah comedy of the year without a shadow of a doubt well we've uh, clearly agreed that we're we're both very positive on this one sorry to bother you uh so that's a good i guess positive note on which to roll into the third act of the show the third act of this week's show we're gonna take this boots riley theme debut directors and run with it so we've got our top five directorial debuts of all time (laughs) right after this. Right, Grace. Hello, welcome back. Um, You can go first because we spoke without your presence for that entire last section. So, top five directorial debuts. So this is top five directorial debuts of all time. We haven't gone contemporary. We've gone, and this was a hard list to put together. I don't know if anyone else struggled with this. It's really difficult. And this is going to change in like a couple of hours (laughs) because there's just so many good films ever in time. Um, So what's your number five, Grace? uh, I think I'm choosing Mary Van Peebles with New Jack City. I've never seen New Jack City, Pete. Nope. Tell us about New Jack City. Um, Okay, all you need to know is it's got Chris Rock in one of the greatest, like, um, acting roles he's ever done. Like, he's hardly in it, but what he does is so good and so emotionally hitting. It's amazing. Um, And it's got Ice-T in it. And Wesley Snipes. It's about drugs. It's about grimy street life. Is it an action film? It's a, it's it's a it's a drama right. action, hard hitting, amazing tour de force, and I love it. And it's I put it in my top ten films of all time Oof, high as praise. well. Yeah, and the title track's really good because Ice T does it. So there you go. Nice. <laughs> Can you tell I'm going to check, check that out now. Do you, you say you've never oh, seen classic. that either? Pete? No, I haven't. No. Oh, New Jack no. City. Yeah, Married Van Peebles is like. I was like putting my fist in the air, like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, Pete, do you want to go next with your number five? Sure. Yeah, number five for me. So this this 
number five position has probably been the most agonizing of the top five because I, I started with that, to be honest. I started with a long list that was about 30 odd films and then the number five I've knocked out three or four of my very favorite films by some of my favorite film directors and settled on this one so in number five I'm going for the directorial debut of a Canadian actress turned director Sarah Polly this one is away from her from 2006 which I know I've talked about here and there on the show before. It's a very simple sell, I guess, for people to know whether this is something you'd be interested in. It tells the story of an elderly, uh, ageing couple who, for the first time in their lives and their lives together, are to be separated for a, a period, I think, longer than a week might have been their record be before this time, because one of them is uh, needing more support and needs to go to be looked after in a in a home, essentially, in a, a some um, a assisted living accommodation and so the film is this uh, portrait of a love affair but a love affair where we don't get flashbacks to when they were younger like a film like Iris that I really like um, so we don't get that context but we see all of the years in the exchanges they have at the age that they are in addition to it being to me anyway heart-wrenching um, to see I always find that like love that has endured with people who are later in life just hits me harder. Like we're, we're inundated with films about, you know, 25 year olds falling in love and we're supposed to be, you know, super invested in that. And to me, it always seems relatively shallow because it's a time in life where there are so many possibilities in front of you. You know, if this one doesn't work, there might be another one. This isn't the case in Away From Her. But then in addition, we also have these little bits of comedy that sort of permeate through this fabric of like sadness and... and uh, and, and sort of wrenching a part of two spirits, really. And there's one sequence in particular where a guy does like a sports commentary um, voice over of a man as he walks down a corridor in the home and talks about, oh, there goes a man as his heart smashes into a thousand pieces. And it's like both sad and really, really funny. I think that Sarah Polly is one of the best uh, film... It doesn't even matter, female, male. I just think she's one of the most interesting film makers to come out of at least Canada in the in the last sort of 10 years or so and since then she's since this movie she's done Take This Waltz and which is really good and she's done uh, Stories We Tell which is just a fantastic documentary if anyone is interested in checking out more of her stuff but this one is away from her from 2006 it is incredible what have you got Paul? Uh, Mr George Miller uh, who debuted onto our big screens with the original Mad Max in 1979 which is, if you look at the sequels, and I think if you watch Mad Max, I've been watched the sequels first, Mad Max is not to the film you expect at all. It's a lot more grounded. It's There's none of this sort of sci-fi bombast that came with um, uh, Mad Max 2 and then later with Fury Road. We'll ignore Thunder Road at this point because it needs to be ignored. Um, but Mad Max is a gritty and incredibly dark um, sort of revenge, revenge road movie where... Um, Max, Max Rocker, I can never pronounce that name. Max, played by uh, Mel Gibson here, um, is basically his family get raped. Well, his his wife is his wife. I'm sure they're married. His wife gets raped and murdered by this street gang, um, and they and his daughter as well, if I remember rightly. Um, and he goes after them for revenge. Um, it's an incredibly gritty film. Um, it's Mel Gibson's performance is superb. Um, and some of, you know, you've got the iconic car, you've got the iconic sort of 
you're not quite sure what's going on with the way the films the way the films set in Australia you're not quite sure whether something has happened or whether it is post-apocalyptic or not and I think it's set I think it's set I get the impression for me what I take from this and step in guys if, if you agree is kind of set around an apocalypse apocalyptic mm. event kind of thing like everything is not quite right in the world there is set and possibly a fuel shortage that kind of thing I think that's that's the impression I get yeah, is, is is where it's set. So you've got that great ambiguity and just visually the film is astounding and it just just straight up is it's just a superb piece of filmmaking and there's a debut it's just masterful like it's just just like boom here's George Miller check check out this uncompromising absolutely savage piece of filmmaking here I am and then he made happy feet. <laughs> so um <laughs> Yes, so my number five is George Miller's Mad Max from 1979. Uh, Grace, number four. My number four is a surprise to me, but um, this is so recent. Um, you made this list though, right? You can't be surprised by your no, own I'm list. No, su- <laughs> I am surprised that I would put such a recent movie right. on because I usually go for um, older films. But yeah, Hereditary um, is definitely... I nearly in... made my list, I have to say. Mm. Yeah. Um, just because like, I'm a super horror junkie and... I'm always sort of on this quest to watch a new horror film that's actually going to stay with me and f me up for months to come. We've and got a, we've got an explicit language warning, by the way. Oh, so it's fine. Oh, I've, I'm feeling quite you know <laughs> feeling quite mild today. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, and that film was just like packed a punch in my brain, and I just I think. Um, I I mean, n- nowadays it's really impressive that someone can break through with an original, awesome, well-constructed, layered film plot anyway, which isn't like based on a book or based, you know, like that came out of someone's brain, that. And everyone's performance in it is amazing. The special effects are amazing. It It was reminiscent of 1970s horror, but it also had this kind of, the, the modern day... Le- um, varnish to it was just incredible and yeah there you go that's my number Could, four grace from the point of view your point of view as a filmmaker i just wanted to ask like the sequence in which um for people who have again spoiler i guess i'm not going to spoil the, the end of the film but the mm. sequence in which the brother has to take his sister to the house party that he goes to that has bad consequences in the end to me is one of the most memorable sequences in filmmaking not just of this year but probably of the last 10 years and I just wondered if it struck you in the same way like as such an achievement where there's a certain thing and I can't put my finger on it because I'm not a filmmaker but like a certain thing where a filmmaker makes you feel so uneasy with a situation that is essentially innocuous to begin with, which Mm. is that these two people go to a house party and yes, there's a certain element of danger, but like, I don't know if you had any insight or like how that sequence struck you because when the bad thing happens, it was like I'd just been shot in the stomach or something. Incredible that. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's like, that is like a parent's worst nightmare in itself. And there's always this kind of fear when your older sibling takes you to a uh, place where there's like older kids around and you don't really know what you're doing. And then she's got these kind of um, learning difficulties as it is. She's got an allergy. Um, the, the the noise, the soundscape that 
that is created. I think it's really important to be able to shock an audience using the most simplistic tools possible. And like personally, for me, more often than not, I don't get scared when it's like an overuse of like jump scares or special effects. And I think also with the follow on sequence as well, a combination of the soundscape, um, soundtrack and then um, practical effects, I think are the most impactful way Mm. of packing a punch in a horror movie i think um, and i I, yeah. I don't i don't think by any means it's a prerequisite of finding that sequence upsetting or un- upsetting or like unsettling but the fact that the guy the the boy the teenage boy in the sequence is high when yeah. it happens yeah. is something that like if you've ever been even a little bit high yourself mm. uh you will recognize like i heard from a, a close friend of mine recently that that he was once um high and his house was burgled whilst he was there mm. and um just the kind of thing that like it's very hard to explain that to someone who doesn't know what you mean but like how everything is going to rush back into sharp focus in such a short yeah, space of time. Incredibly well. Yeah. Incredibly well. Yeah. I mean, I know we're not doing a big feature review of, of Hereditary, <laughs> although I'm sure we'll get to talk about it in a couple of weeks when we do. The I imagine it might come yeah, up. It might, it might appear up. on some lists. Yeah. 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 I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling. Uh, Pete, that leaves you with number four. Yeah. Yeah. So for number four, I mean, I guess staying on the theme of sort of fairly unsettling, horrible things. Uh, this one could have been higher from 1972. This is the uh, feature debut of Wes Craven, The Last House on the Left. Um, the Last House on the Left, again, might have talked about it on the show, but to me, it's much more than the sort of loosely thrown together collection of sequences, including that really shit Keystone Cops bit in the middle. It's this amazing <laughs> allegory of like the Vietnam War and of the consequences of violence and of kind of almost arbitrary violence, which will be something that comes up in another one of my picks as well, I think. And there's there's so many things I could talk about with this movie and, and why it impacted me the way that it did when I first saw it at age 17 or whatever. But I guess what sums it up, and I think I've even talked about this on the show before, is the fact that the guy who plays Krug, the, the big goon at the head of the gang, um, is called David A. Hess, the actor, and he also composed the soundtrack to the movie. And there's a song which I believe he wrote and recorded on acoustic guitar, which may or may not be called The Road Leads to Nowhere, but it's a sequence where uh, the one of the female uh, kidnapped victims walks away trying to escape from the gang, but with very, very little physically left to give. And she walks into the water, it's like a lake, um, so she's moving away from the camera, and this song is playing out that is, and the road it's like a kind of um low key almost like mournful folksy song the road leads to nowhere and um as she walks away with the sort of vaguest hope that she might survive to live another day she's shot in the back and then gradually sort of drowns and bleeds out in the lake and it's a shocking image it's an upsetting image but it's also an incredibly powerful image when you see that there's more going on here than just a horrible video nasty Wes Craven made this movie as an angry young man who was trying to deal with the situation that he saw his life developing in and I think not to put too fine a point on it but as people growing up in this era you can see that some of the horror that we have uh, you know emerging nowadays on the cinema screen I mean here is gonna be representative of also particularly difficult circumstances well, I would argue is a reflection of society's ills a lot of the sure time anyway, sure so. but what I mean is like there are particular points in history where I think you get 
a real sense that um, people, younger people particularly, but people in general, are just existentially ill at ease. And I yeah, think The Last House on the Left yeah. is, is a great example of that. And so I love it, even though I know it's deeply flawed in many ways. <laughs> and he basically, like Wes Craven didn't really know what he was doing when he made this movie. But all of that anger and all of that feeling is sort of slathered all over it. And that's why I love it so much. That's my number four. Paul, what have you got? Uh, I've got Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men uh, from 1957. I had to look twice when I was looking at debut films because I sat there and I was like, no way is 12 Angry Men someone's first film. Mm-hmm. 12 Angry Men was the directorial debut of Sidney Lumet. You could argue maybe the script is the scriptwriter should get as much credit as Sidney Lumet, and fair enough. Uh, but the film itself is just an incredible accomplishment and just a masterclass of how to use essentially a single location just so well. Like, and yeah, a lot of it does, again, you've got to add a lot of credit to the dialogue here as well, but it's just a film that, uh, for those of you who haven't seen this or are unaware of it, I imagine that's probably no one, um, but it's kind of the the post-trial the post um, trial deliberations. Is it, kind of like a, is it a murder trial, if I remember rightly? I've completely forgotten now, I should have remembered this, but it's post-trial deliberations of a jewellery, um, and then they come around to the guys, did this guy do it, did this guy didn't do it, and then like suddenly someone one of the characters thinks he's won he's won round the, the jewelry and then someone else steps in and you're right there you're right there on the twists and turns and it's almost like being you feel you almost basically i think the way 12 angry men makes you feel like it makes you feel like you're in the room but can't actually say anything and you really want to shout back at some of the characters and they're speaking up you're like no that's not what happened no that's unfair and it just it just puts you in that courtroom so so well and it's just an incredible piece of filmmaking an absolute classic absolute classic and i still i still i'm not convinced it's a directorial debut but i it is <laughs> uh grace number three from you um i'm only not putting this at number one just because i don't think it's the greatest film ever made but it's definitely one of my favorite films ever and that is albert magnoli with purple rain so there um <laughs> I, i'm like a huge huge Prince fan um he is my favorite one of my favorite artists of all time and a lot of people kind of just dismiss this film as just being oh it's that one where they play Purple Rain and and yeah it's got some songs in it and it's really trashy but actually if you watch that film again the cinematography is amazing um the acting not always great but they for for non-actors they all give it their best shot and there's some classic moments um it it totally sums up like a kind of um the a music scene and the inner feuds of of trying to be the best like in your town to own a club um it deals with really awful issues um of you know domestic violence and it's um one of it it is it sums up the 80s in so many ways um the costumes are amazing and it won a bloody oscar so there so there <laughs> don't trash it prince we won haven't an oscar for that. and i'm we not i'm not talking it. to you two because oh, okay. you haven't opened your mouths yet and i don't think you'll dare to <laughs> <laughs> the internet you're talking to the internet at large um you know you can diss graffiti bridge all you want the sequel you can diss under the cherry moon if you want to but do not diss purple rain it's a bloody classic and it's got one of the it I wouldn't classify it as a musical unless I'm trying to put it into an argument of best musical, but it because it's got that cabaret thing where the songs are just on stage or just played over, so I wouldn't say it was a musical, but it is definitely one of the greatest musical films of all time. Yeah, 
and a great directorial debut. And I'm pretty sure it's one of the only films he ever did, that guy. Pete, have you seen it? I haven't. Have Me you neither. not seen Purple I was, Rain? I was hoping you'd be the first. I haven't seen Purple you Rain. You haven't either. seen Purple no. Rain? Shut up. How not? Okay, <laughs> okay, I'm go- okay, Grace, can we just talk about the fact that before coming on to <laughs> oh, do yes. the show, In you fairness, were the yeah. person saying, oh, you know that thing <laughs> yeah. when people say, I can't believe you haven't seen whatever I know, the thing but this is yeah. so close to my heart. This is I don't different. Even you, haven't, you haven't seen Raging Ball. <laughs> I know I haven't seen Raging Ball, but... Yeah, right. Who's next? Fine. Pete, you're up next. You've got number three, I think. <laughs> number three, that's correct. Yes. So um, this is uh, the directorial debut that is probably most, yeah, it's most recent. Yeah, the most recent one in my list. From 2008, from uh, Charlie Kaufman, it's Synecdoche, New York. Um, Synecdoche, New York is a movie that I um, have seen a few times and I could understand entirely if someone found this sort of slightly infuriar- infuriating or irritating or whatever but I just didn't feel that way about it at all it's like Charlie Kaufman showing the kind of breadth and genius level creativity of the palette that he has at his disposal to make a story which is about a man who needs um, to use uh, the MacArthur Genius Grant in order to put on an installation that's going to sort of sum up his entire life's work and for that he's going to need understudies of understudies of understudies of understudies and it's this thing all about like how life is performative and and the, the actions that you take in your life have an element of performance and everything sort of held in this aspect of like regret and sadness about the past that stops you moving on into the future the sequence at the end on the sofa reduced me to tears I think the first and second time that I saw the movie I would I concur with that the it, film reduced me to tears twice as well it's and, and, yeah. and you've got like just some incredible performances I mean I remember distinctly that the day that I learned coming out of a screening at the cinema that Philip Seymour Hoffman had passed away the post that I put up, because, you know, that's the way that the modern world indicates their sadness about things, isn't it? <laughs> was a, a quote taken from Synecdoche, New York. And obviously that's not Philip Seymour Hoffman himself. But like the way he embodies this character, I think, is one of his finest achievements amongst a catalogue of incredible performances. But you've also got in this great performances from the likes of um, Samantha Morton and Catherine Keener and uh, all sorts. So like it, it's fantastic. Like if you like this sort of hyper-intelligent, twisty, uh, meditative stuff, then you'll really go for it. If you like things a bit straighter, then maybe not, and that's fine. But I just think for this to be your directorial debut, I mean, it's a thing that we're going to say a lot, I guess, on this countdown, yeah, but yeah. it's it's just fucking astonishing. So, yeah, um, I, I, I love Synecdoche, New York. Um, I'll watch it again soon, I reckon. A good Christmas film. <laughs> um, Paul, what about you? Talking What's of a good Christmas film and a film that left me in bits, this actually left me possibly the one of the most shaken I've ever uh, the most shaken I've ever been after a film and I include hereditary in that uh, this is Andrea Andrew Arnold's directorial debut from 2006 this is Red Road which is just fucking bleak but it is also brilliant so this stars Kate Kate Dickey um, who is a superb underrated actress who should get more work in my opinion um, she spends her days monitoring uh, she basically she she monitors CCTV for a living um, and spots an ex-convict on one of her screens and kind of becomes obsessed with him um, and to say any more than that would be to drift into spoiler territory but in terms of and the red road is a, was a housing estate in is it Scotland am I making that up now I think that's true. Check yeah. my facts quickly. Red Road Estate. So I think 
I think it was a housing estate in Scotland, possibly Glasgow. I well, Kate, Kate Dickey's Scottish as well, isn't she? Yeah, so um, that would make sense. But yeah, it's just it's just an incredibly powerful piece of filmmaking from a director who we yeah the Red Road Flats. So the Red Road Flats are in Glasgow, and they were kind of notoriously notoriously run down areas. One of these one of these sort of great ideas, these pie in the sky ideas from the nineteen sixties, where we'll make high rise and everyone will live incredibly well, and then what will actually what will happen is they'll just become very run down and dilapidated very quickly and become just horrible places to live and areas in in desperate need of help. So we we we're kind of we're born into that environment, um, which is an environment of sort of social realism that Andrew Arnold does it incredibly well anyway. But it's just. Again, no spoilers here, but the, the where it goes is it's an incredibly dark film. It's not an easy watch, but it's it's a fantastically put together film. And yeah, and you talk about bold calling cards and and, and a brave choice of uh, directorial debut. And Andrew Arnold is one of the greatest directors working today. So um, yeah, Red Road. If you haven't seen it, find it. It's superb. Sounds like yeah. it could be like Selfish Giant, which freaks me out. Oh, Selfish Giant's but amazing. Bloody hell. <laughs> Yeah, Red Road will leave you. Uh, yeah, it will leave oh, okay. you. It will leave you in bits without a shadow of a doubt. But definitely watch it. You're not going to. You're unlikely. You're going to want to watch it more than once. I think I've seen it twice. Uh, but yeah, it's an you know, incredibly powerful piece of filmmaking. And, so, and yeah. of course, this is you know people know this already. But this is Andrew Arnold who went on to make I think what was our consensus film of the year a couple of years ago, American, American Honey, Honey yeah. right? So yeah, yeah a, a, a one to to watch. You know, well look back into the the back catalogue and also watch yeah. out for in the future. She had fish tank as well, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. she's great, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. We on number four? No. What number two now. Number two, sorry, I was going wrong. <laughs> You're going backwards. Fourth. You're going backwards, yeah. <laughs> My fourth choice, yeah. number two, um, is Sam Raimi, Evil Dead. Boom! Nice. Oh, I'm glad it's in there because this is one that I took <laughs> off my list and I felt like a bit of a dick doing it. So yeah. Yeah, I'm glad it's there. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why is it on your list? Because that's like budget filmmaking at its best and it's like the biggest success story ever it's scary it's stupid it's uh, iconic um bruce campbell is bloody amazing and it's just it's one of the first films that like completely freaked me out and then when i've been watching since all the behind the scenes stuff of how they did all the practical effects i was just like oh my god it's so easy to make a horror film if you just get it right isn't it like you can do horror on such a low budget if you just got the right idea and the right team and just have loads of persistence even with little money it's just um i mean so many films have been based on evil dead it's got its own extended universe now i'm really sad that ashby evil versus evil dead has been cancelled actually because that was like one of the best tv shows that i've seen in a long time um and yeah if it wasn't for evil dead we wouldn't have so many horror films that, or um, have you read um if chins could kill the bruce campbell's book because no. he, he talks about how horrible that film was to make yeah just and how tough a shoot it was like yeah. it was just grim they used a real guy and like this certain cast of this certain female cast members saw the film at the end of it and disowned the film yeah and it just it was just horrendous yeah. to shoot that film yeah yeah real blood and guts movie yeah. and you know sam raimi is like now one of the greatest directors, in my opinion. And, and wasn't it so good yeah. to see Ram, Sam Raimi get to return <laughs> to to that area uh, of oh, his sort of back catalogue with Drag Me to I Hell? Love yeah, Drag Me to yeah, Hell. Drag Me, Drag me to Hell. Great. I think I went to see three times at the cinema. <laughs> I, I loved it so much. So great, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's my number two fourth choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, number two, number two, number two. Uh, talking of number two, it's Pete. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yes, indeed. Well, uh, I don't know how to segue from that to this, but uh, number two for me, 1977. This was my number one for a long time and then I knocked it off. Uh, it's the directorial debut of a man you may have heard of called David Lynch. Pete, this, this one... is my number two. We can share is this. It really? we can share this. Yeah. Okay, th- this is a razor head. Now, like, hmm, I'm going to come at this from this angle, Paul. I don't really have any burning desire to re-watch a razor head, but it's still number two on this list. And that's not because I'm putting it there because it's got some sort of prestige or I feel like I ought to. It had a profound impact on me when I saw it for the first time and probably the second time as well. But it's also that when I was doing this list, I thought like... Okay, what parameters could I I use to make a list of directorial debuts? And surely one good yardstick would be like, what did this give rise to? Because there are some where I thought, like, I I really, as you can imagine, Paul, I was really close to putting uh, Martha, Marcy May, Marlene on the list because I just think as a feature debut, it's amazing. But then Sean Durkin is, I think, yet to fulfil the potential of that movie. Mm. So it, it felt like it could be left off. Whereas David Lynch is such a big part of why I became uh, a really big film fan rather than like a more casual cinema goer or, or whatever. And that all started for me with seeing in close proximity to one another, Eraserhead, uh, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. So uh, in particular, it's really, really weird. It's kind of impenetrable to begin with. Um, it's sort of quirkily funny at points. It's incredibly creative. It took him over four years to make, and um, uh, it, it just kind of gives you a a really rough crash course in David Lynch, where I think <laughs> it's a good way of passing between like the people who should stay on board and the people who are probably better off letting the train leave the platform and leaving alone the rest of the David Lynch films. They're not all like this, but if you can get with this, then you can probably get with anything that he's done since. Paul, tell me your opinions about it. Kind of, kind of, kind of share, share your thoughts, really. I think it was the first time I watched a film and I was like, okay, I thought I was into film. I thought I'd seen a few bits of different filmmaking at the time. I can't remember. I was quite young when I watched this, I think. And I was like, oh no, no, I haven't. I've got a lot more to learn about films and there's a lot of different stuff I haven't seen. If there's more out there like this, I want to see it at once. And it, yeah, it definitely, I would say, broadened broadened my horizons for looking for more experimental kinds of film. Because as you say, not all of his films are like a razor head, but it's one of those films that also, in, in some ways, you almost, it becomes so seared into your brain that you almost only need to watch it once. Like I think I've seen it three or four times now in fairness but yeah it's such a powerful film and the impact it has and the, the visuals and the sound design and the way you're sitting there going why am I watching this at times you're sitting there go what am I watching here and why am I watching this but there's just something about it that just sucks you in and keeps you gripped towards the end and you know you, you see where I'm coming from Pete especially some of the sound design you're just like it's just essentially scraping industrial noises um like at times and just like weird sort of, sort of white white noise and that kind of thing but there's just something about the way your razor head is put together and something about the way that David Lynch works well, and, and the way keeps that keeps you coming back for more. And maybe in the same way that you're talking about, like being uh, a difficult one to get with at a sort of early stage in watching different kinds of movies and stuff like that. This is, it felt like a director who is really uninterested by whether you as an audience are sort of led along by the hand between sort of points A, B and C. He's not really interested in whether you're grasping what's going on here, but he's sort of leaving that to you. And it's a bit, this might be a bit of a weird um, connection uh, to, it's going to sound like a really nerdy connection as well to the world of video games, but it's a bit like that guy, Jonathan Blow, 
who makes um, things oh, like the, wit- the Witness. Yeah, but, but particularly in reference to The Witness, where like when you hear him interviewed, he has a very similar idea, which is like a lot of video games are built on this idea that the play- player playing the game needs to be led along so that they have a good story and a good time and it never gets frustrating. Whereas both Lynch and Jonathan Blow in very different ways just say like, there are things to be found here go and find them. Yeah, and that's absolutely. sort of a challenge to you. And if you don't want that challenge, you don't need David Lynch in your life. And that's all good. Yeah. Like, there's no judgment on that. It doesn't make you better or worse than anyone else, whether you're a fan of his or you absolutely loathe him. But at the same time, you can't dispute the the importance, the impact and the legacy of a director like that on loads of other people, including yeah, the stuff agree. that he's done since, obviously. Grace, number one from you. Not number five, number one. No. Oh... <laughs> You said okay. you turn more excited. Number one, have you, are you changing your mind as we speak? No, I'm is that the problem? I haven't changed my okay. mind. I just feel like my choices have been like you guys have given me like real in-depth analytical <laughs> <laughs> debates. I'd be like, it's so good, I love it. Um, no, my um, my number one choice is Quentin Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs. Good. So there. I'm glad someone picked that for the number one. <laughs> um, Why? Um, I don't really like it. Fair on. enough. But go Fair on. enough. Um, again, just because it's it it shows what um, a uh, real um, individual creative mind can do with a small budget, and there's not a lot that goes on in that film, but yet the cast um, all work together to create this new um, heisty thriller film. Um, Tim Roth is incredible in that movie. Harvey Keitel is incredible. It's so iconic. It defined who Quentin Tarantino is as a director. Um, and um, it's just so memorable for me and so inspirational that you can um, create such an impact with such a basic set and plot. I know, and to, also to come from the fact that I don't really like it is neither here nor there mm. because it's, it's not going to affect Tarantino's career in the slightest. No, but to come from nothing to making such a bold statement to go to go in, he kind of, I he was almost for me, he's one of the first. I know, I'm not one of the first, but he's almost perhaps he is like a superstar indie filmmaker. Yeah, in the same way that people talk about Spielberg, everyone knows about Tarantino. Whereas I would say it would be very easy to assume everyone knows about David Lynch. I don't think they do. But every single you put me a single person, you 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 walk into the street and you say name me a film, name yeah. me a f- a film directors. They're going to say Spielberg. Yeah. They're going to might say George Lucas. They're going to say Tarantino. Yeah. And for someone, and that happened very very quickly, and he blew up to this level of like superstardom as a film director because this film just came out and made yeah. massive waves um f- for sure so yeah. pete where do you stand on reservoir dogs well and i, I was just going to say on on sort of spouting off as i was about uh, the legacy of you know david lynch's debut in the late 70s like you just can't argue with the impact on modern cinema like i don't yeah. know that i don't know that anyone has had the impact on modern cinema that quentin tarantino has from like the use of music to the the visual aesthetics that he's borrowed from other places and like oftentimes when we talk or when people talk about like oh i'm not so high on tarantino i don't like him and stuff it's because you've already had this part where you've 
like appreciated stuff and you don't talk about that you just focus on like oh he borrowed this from here and he took this from here yeah what managing to do that is a lot harder than it might sound it's not like any old fucking idiot can just go like oh i'm just gonna take influences from oh, these places sure. yeah, yeah. put it in yeah. a melting pot and come out with one of the most iconic films of a you know an entire generation so yeah i i do like reservoir dogs i think it's up there with my two or three favorite of, of tarantino's films um but it's just one that i haven't rewatched for a long time and, sure. and probably ought to I, I i mean from a personal perspective i prefer david lynch to tarantino and i actually think tarantino gets worse with the more money he gets oh, for to sure. make movies yeah, I, I think he's become a victim of his own success i to be couldn't honest. finish kill bill i rewatched it the other day i was like god I, c- I cannot deal with this film it's too much i didn't like django too much didn't like hateful eight too much i think is earlier stuff where he's new Pulp Fiction and fresh. is Pulp Fiction is Pulp fantastic. Fiction, that's yeah. one of the first, um, yeah, one of the first kind of gang crime films I ever saw, I think when I was like 12 mm. maybe. Um, but yeah, from a, I'm much more of a David Lynch fan, but I think Reservoir Dogs is a more impactful director. Oh no, it's a massive statement. Game. It's a massive, you. massive statement, as you say. Like who hasn't, who hasn't in suits walked down the street yeah. playing Reservoir Dogs? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And the miss, the miss, the calling each other Mister, and then the colours. That's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no. In terms of its, in terms of its impact, mm. that that arrived like a bomb. Yeah. Without a doubt. And even, um, and even like little things from a filmmaking point of view. And again, feel you know, correct me if I'm overstating Tarantino here, but like things like shooting from the interior of the boot of a car or like uh, using Dutch angles things that you didn't see from American filmmakers I don't think around 19 early 1990s anyway and that then became absolutely part of the regular palette of filmmakers of all different kinds making everything from like indie features through to like huge budget things all from one filmmaker I think that just it can't be underestimated that impact no, absolutely. Uh, talking of not being underestimated, Pete, what have you got at number one, sir? So number one is, I mean, you I'm, I'm resigned. I'm, <laughs> well, no, I'm not resigned at all because this is. I'm really excited to talk about this, but I'm going to be um, fully sort of confessional to you guys and the listeners on this one. A little bit like the last list, I thought, okay, there are a few that I want to hit before we do the recording of this, and one of the ones that I realised was going to be a like, oh my god, you've never seen one, has ended up coming in at number one on right. my list. <laughs> uh, but I can fully justify why this is, isn't just some kind of hipster choice. Uh, number one for me is from 1973. It's the feature debut of one Terence Malick. This is Badlands, which I saw today. You watched uh, it this morning. Nice. I watched it this morning. Yeah. Do you know so, what? This made my list. This made my top five, Pete. And then I redid my top five and I don't know why it's been left off. So I'm glad you've picked up on this because this was on my list. So well done, right. sir. <laughs> so so uh, what, where to start? I mean, there are times watching Badlands where I thought like I don't fully get the massive amounts of of praise that this thing receives and then it just like the other Terence Malick stuff that I've seen it develops this sort of life of its own he he manages to like marry um, sound and image and character in a way that I don't think that many other film directors can do. It's not just Terence Malick knows how to shoot an American Vista or whatever, which is clearly the case, you know, the wind through the barley or whatever, but it's the fact that the the two people at the centre of this thing, Sissy Spacex's character and, and Martin Sheen's character, as this sort of Bonnie and Clyde couple who go on the run together, albeit 
not the love story that you might think. I mean, I'm not convinced that Sissy Spacek's character even particularly likes Martin Sheen's character for the most part of the movie. But you've got a guy who's 25 in the film. Martin Sheen's character is supposed to be 25. SpaceX character's 15. And they go on the run because essentially um, he takes revenge against uh, her father because she took revenge... Uh, sorry, he took revenge against her. Her father shoots her dog because she's dating the right guy, which is something I found hard to take as a pet lover. Um, and then it, the, the revenge for that is that he's summarily shot by, by Sheen's uh, sort of James Dean cowboy on the Definitely run. James Dean uh, character. Uh, yeah, character. And, and for all the time, you've got this really good performance from Martin Sheen, where a lot of it is clipped and he seems a bit unknowable and a bit unlikable, but he's got a real sense of himself all the way through the end. Even though he's like a deplorable guy, he's got this sense of himself to the point where he's like wisecracking after he's been arrested. And then, this was the thing for me about the film Badlands. Um, when it the final shot of this film where I did my little letterboxed review, whatever. And I was like, okay, I've loved this movie and so many elements of it, particularly, like I say, the visuals and the score and the way they're blended together. And I had it as a four and a half star movie. And then in my head, as I was walking around, I reran this last shot. And it's this bit, if you remember, have you seen this, Greg? No. See, I don't because I don't want it to sound like I'm going like, oh, I'm just going to blunder into sort of spoiling the end of the movie. But no, I don't no, please do. It's I, fine. I don't, I... I, do, I don't think it does that. What I'm going to say, but it's this bit where uh, there's an exchange between uh, Sheen's character and a law enforcement officer, where the law enforcement officer says, uh, "You're a real character. You know that." And Sheen's character says, do you think they'll take that into account? And at this point, he's facing, you know, the repercussions of all the crimes that he's done. But then Terence Malick's final shot, instead of being, you know, him being led away to, to his fate or whatever, is a plane lifting up through cloud cover into the sky. And oh, I, I don't know. I'm almost upset. It was so it was so <laughs> wonderful, like just so beautiful that... I think it's the kind of film that I'm probably going to rewatch an awful lot of times. Um, I think it's phenomenal. And I think that, yeah, again, like the, the motif of this list, maybe from my side, like that this is the debut feature of a man that had not yet turned 30 years of age, that, that this movie was made on a budget of $300,000. Um, do you know, originally they put this, Warner's put this as a double feature with Blazing Saddles in the cinema because <laughs> they no. thought that would be the way to present it. I, I don't think that was a great idea. But yeah, uh, it, it's it's kind of brutal and it's violent and it's nasty at times. But all of that has got a sort of quietness and an, an elegance, which for me doesn't feel like Malik letting these people, particularly Martin Sheen's character, off the hook. Um, mm. I think they actually come across as quite sad and lost and, and sort of vaguely hopeless. And interestingly enough, uh, to finish, the movie was obviously released uh, a year, just a year after the release of Last House on the Left. And like, they're such different films, but in many ways, I think they're very similar. And I think they're made by two very different people in Wes Craven and, and uh, Terence Malick living in a very similar kind of world at that time so yeah it, it's fantastic it's my number one badlands 1973 paul what have you got 
Talking of films set in the early 70s, and in fact made in the early 70s, uh, this is 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre from Toby Hooper. Um, not only is it my favourite directorial debut, but it is one of my favourite films of all time, and it is, I would say, certainly my top horror film of all time. So I've talked about Texas Chainsaw, Chainsaw Massacre quite a lot on this show, but oh my word, what a piece of cinema that is. Every time I watch it, I am still left with... Just this feeling, just this dirty, disgusting feeling about what am I actually watching. The dinner scene in particular is just vile. It's just just such a potent piece of filmmaking. You were talking, Pete, about films made on not very much money. $140,000 is what Texas Chainsaw Massacre costs to make. Um, and perhaps in the quality of the film stock, you can see that. Mm. Um, but that all adds to it. It's just... it's. The whole thing about, like, the whole... We had this whole thing in the 70s, like you were talking, Last House on the Left, being a Vietnam allegory. You had this, the the fuel crisis in the US, this fear of the fact that, like, the cities were expanding into the countryside and this fear of people who lived in the countryside and this massive culture clash between the, the city folk and the country dwellers. And that all plays on those fears here with the, the kind of... the. I'm well assuming inbred family living in the house, the Sawyer family as they became known, um, and it's just a it's a masterclass in sound design. Much actually, the sound design in um, Last House and um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is actually quite reminiscent of the sound design in, sound design in a Razorhead. I think in some ways, like there's a lot of just industrial like it feels like people are just running nails like bleeding nails down metal boards. It's just it's just horrible and the atmosphere this film evokes without actually showing very much gore either um and it just it's sort of less is more like when leatherface is introduced as a character he just grabs someone in and the door slams you don't see very much it's just such a powerful horror film and just incredibly well put together especially for the budget and uh, arguably it was weird you were saying about sort of the directors having a legacy afterwards i think toby hooper this is by far Toby Hooper's I think best film mm. I think he's made some some decent decent stabs at horror films since but I kind of floundered around a little bit I think and has never made anything anywhere near as good as the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre but yeah it's just an astounding piece of filmmaking and the greatest horror film of all time and that is my number one Texas Chainsaw Massacre any thoughts well, I, mean, she, you got, I know you guys have seen this we, yeah, Pete yeah. Watched, we've watched it together Pete but. I was going to be as bold to say with that film kind of influenced a whole subgenre of horror but I, I was trying to think if hills have eyes came before texas chainsaw massacre but certainly that kind of you know getting stuck in american countryside and being taken in by a family of and came afterwards hills of eyes was there 1977 go, yeah. So, yeah, yeah there you go i'm gonna make that fact yeah. and it's definitely yeah. it influenced a subgenre of uh, horror yeah horror films yeah <laughs> um i i'm I don't know. I'm on the fence of of saying the dickish, the most dickish comment that I've probably ever said on our show. What you don't like Texas Chainsaw Massacre? No, is it <laughs> is it his debut? Toby Hooper. I'm because fairly confident. It's according his to the IMDb, Toby Hooper released a film in 1969 that was one hour and twenty nine minutes called Ooh. Eggshells. See, I had it down as directorial debut personally, where I was looking earlier. Anyway, it's great. you know you know what that kind of criticism should have done to it it should be thrust onto a meat hook and left to die yeah because yeah yeah texas chainsaw massacre is amazing yeah no i've got nothing bad to say about it at all it's incredibly good i know i'm looking at yeah see i had it listed as debut but then so eggshells was made in 1969 but whether or not the debut is whether eggshells actually came out or not it might be where it's Right, maybe didn't get a cinematic yeah, release. Yeah, whether, whether it's been... See, Eggshells, let's have a quick look. I'm intrigued now. Independent low-budget film. Hmm, maybe he produced Arrow it Arrow Films, something. right, okay. It was released... 
I'm not sure where it was released. It was certainly it was released in an Arrow box set, Blu-ray limited edition of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So you can get it now. There you go. Well, I'm wrong then, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre is fucking brilliant, so I don't care. Um, <laughs> well, no, I think I, I wouldn't give up on that. I'd stick to that. Like, it's only a feature debut if it kind of sees an audience, and maybe yeah. that first movie hasn't seen an audience, and that's Well, why. listeners out there, tell me if I'm wrong. By all means, tell us where, where Eggshells came out. But I had that down as a debut. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'm happy to talk about that film. So, right, well, that's pretty much it then, isn't it, before Pete corrects me again. Um <laughs> Thank you for listening, as ever. We'll be back next week with um, top five Christmas films, I think. I think we've got to that point of the year where we can do top five Christmas films next week. Um, in terms of what we'll review, Aquaman's out this week. Do you fancy doing Aquaman? Is anyone likely to see that? Yeah, 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 Aquaman. This week. Aquaman, Aquaman's out. Uh, Once Upon a Deadpool. Once Upon a Deadpool, we're seeing yeah. tonight, Grace, aren't yeah. we? So, um, so the weird much. Christmas edit of Deadpool 2. So there'll be plenty of Christmas-themed stuff to talk about uh, next week when we will be back. So thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. Shut up and sit down.